I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. On Tuesday, the Vatican warned bishops not to reform faster than Pope Francis after a German diocese said that some divorced and remarried Catholics could now be allowed to receive communion and other sacraments. In Washington, D.C., more than 90 Catholic, Evangelical and Protestant leaders signed a statement rebuking pro-life lawmakers for the government shutdown, saying they were appalled that elected officials were pursuing an extreme ideological agenda at the expense of the working poor and vulnerable families who won't receive government benefits. And last Sunday, between 200 and 300 Pakistani Muslims and Christians united and gathered to make a human chain around a church in Lahore, Pakistan's second largest city. Held just two weeks after a church bombing that killed more than 100 people in Peshawar, the human chain, organised by the citizen group Pakistan for All, is part of the movement's goal to raise awareness about minority rights and concerns. Paul Vallely is the author of a new and very readable biography of the present Pope. It's called Pope Francis Untying the Knots. For a look at the career to date of the first Pope from Argentina, Jerry McArdle spoke to Paul and asked him about the impact of Francis's visit to Assisi last Friday on the feast of the saint from whom he takes his name. Yeah, I think in the day of Assisi, you saw a kind of microcosm of the kind of Pope he is. Um, a pastor, um, a preacher, a uh, politician and a prophet. He turned up uh, on on the day. The news was of all the people who died and off the coast of Lampedusa. He went straight into that. He didn't he didn't um, try and pretend that hadn't happened. He addressed that and made that part of what it, of what he was doing. And this is the Pope for the poor. And there's nobody more poor than African migrants. He then went into the institute where he saw all the severely disabled uh, children, and uh, there were about a hundred of them there. And he insisted on greeting all of them personally, because this is a Pope who sees God in people. Then he, he, he goes and he brings with him his, uh, his eight cardinals who've been part of this Council of Cardinals, the Reform Council that he set up, and um, the, uh, the, the, the whole agenda of what he'd been doing all week was kind of crystallised. OK, the major issues that Benedict left behind for uh, Francis's successor, and you identify some of them in your book, uh, there are three that stand out for me. Let's discuss each one of them. So, reform of the Curia. How would he go about that, and where are the main areas where reform is needed? The first thing that they discussed, this C8, was the relationship between the Curia and the local churches. And they framed it in terms of uh, the synod of bishops and synodality, or some people would say collegiality. But it's about how do you establish mechanisms uh, for ensuring that uh, the centre serves the periphery and not the other way around. Now, we know that they've looked at expanding the role of the laity. We know that they've talked about uh, increasing the role of women in the church. We know that on pastoral issues, they've been looking at things like um, readmitting divorced and remarried Catholics to communion. And uh, I gather there was even some discussion of celibacy. So what they've got to do is, is find mechanisms for institutionalising and locking in the change. 
It was said that Benedict couldn't handle the gay lobby in the Vatican. Who are the members of this gay lobby and what on earth are they lobbying about? Well, lobby is a bit of a misnomer in, 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 in the way that we use it uh, in, in England and in Ireland. Um, it, me- it really means more like a clique than a lobby. And, and what, it, what it is is that uh, uh, there are different groups of careerists uh, in, in the Vatican uh, and this is something that, that Francis is very um, down on, the idea of uh, careerists and clericalists. He's always going on about clericalism, ambition. One or more of these, these uh, cliques um, is uni- united by the fact that uh, the members are gay and there's been some talk about them you know, having gay orgies in, in saunas and all this kind of thing. We don't know whether that's true, but we do know that there's a, there is a perception that some of these glu- groups are united, these cliques are united by their sexuality. I see. Um, the major scandal that the faithful still see as unfinished business is the scandal of clerical child abuse. Now, Benedict apparently was just overwhelmed by this. And again, he was seen to blame what he called sinful priests. So how do you think Francis will deal with this? Well, um, at the consistory where he had all the cardinals together to uh, announce the date for the canonization of uh, uh, John Paul II and John XXIII, he floated the idea of setting up regional and or national courts to deal with paedophile priests, which and they would be dealt with much more swiftly, much more harshly and, and, and locally. Benedict was much harsher and stricter on, on paedophile priests than is generally perceived, but he tried to do it in the old way, you know, holding it inside and secretively, which has been the Vatican tradition. Maybe with these courts, Francis is signalling that he's going to go into a, um, a different way of tackling this. But it's very early days yet, so I think the answer is that the jury's out. Now, I know he's, he said that he would like uh, disused monasteries to be made available to homeless people. He's refusing to live in the papal apartments, opting for a more simple style of living himself. But what happens to those apartments? I mean, do they just stay there in the Vatican as a white elephant? They, uh, they, they're being used for meetings rather than a place that he'll live. What he was afraid of was that if he was in the papal apartments inside the palace, the, f- the word he used in the interview he gave was that it's like a funnel. It's big inside, but it's got a narrow entrance, and other people control who comes through that entrance, whereas in the Casa de Santa Marta, he's more in touch with uh, a wider range of people. He must be a nightmare, though, for the security people. I think he's a nightmare for a lot of people. The security <laughs> people, certainly. Uh, some of the old uh, liturgists who want, want things done in a certain way. Uh, these careerists who are all, you know, l- looking nervously around. Um, you see all the uh, uh, cardinals who used to go around with, the, with the, uh, the, the, the lace and the full red and now walking around with simple crosses on and in black. And, you know, they, he's changed uh, the whole mood and people, are, people are, are, are responding to that. But, you know, a lot of them are very nervous. Um, the um, conservative uh, moral theologian Germain Grise, who was really the darling of, uh, of the John Paul II and Benedict XVI era, uh, wrote a letter recently, and in it he, he talks about this pope being uh, self-indulgent and firing off thoughts about this, that and the other uh, uh, here and there, undermining the, uh, the credibility of the faith and generally saying the kind of thing that, that he should keep to himself and only say to close friends after a good bottle of wine or two. So you, it's clear um, from people like him that, uh, that Francis is, is rattling a lot of cages. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because... Um... 
when when John Paul II was elected, I think the perception was that that we had another John the Twenty Third initially, and a man who would encourage rather con- than condemn. He had this great charisma, great way with the crowd, and then he started issuing his very authoritarian statements, and there was a rush of liberal priests onto our TV screens and radios trying to explain him away, saying that uh, all what he really meant was something different. And we seem to have a reverse situation now with the more traditionalist Catholics trying to explain Francis away and telling us, oh, well, what he really meant was something totally different. What's your view on that? Well, they are doing that. And uh, they, I mean, a lot of the the analysis that I've been writing in uh, the piece in the New York Times last week, in the Independent Week for The Guardian, uh, and a lot of these people come on and comment on the blogs or go on Twitter and, and they are anxious to... Uh, to kind of disentangle uh, what I'm saying and uh, and say, oh, um, you know, Valerie, he's just a liberal and uh, this is all propaganda by the liberals. And I, I just write back to them and say, let's just wait and see, shall we? Because it seems to me that I'm not, you know, spinning it, um, that, that I'm just analysing it and reporting it. Whereas they are very definitely doing these kind of blogs that say, um, Francis in the light of Benedict, you know, the continuity between this Pope and the previous Pope and uh, the un- unbroken thread between John Paul II, Benedict XVI and uh, Francis. And... Um, yeah, there are uh, unbroken threads and there are continuities, but this, he seems to be sending out signals that there, 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 is, there are big uh, differences and that, that uh, there are big changes ahead. Now, one of the things I think that presents you with a problem is that he's going to carry on with the canonizations of John the Twenty Third and John Paul the Second next year. Talk to me about that. I don't think he had any choice about that. Um, the uh, the canonization of of John uh, of, of of John Paul was was um, on on the tracks. So well, I think what he did was he thought, well, if we we're going to have to. Um, canonize a conservative pope let's canonize a liberal one as well and so he speeded up the canonization of john the 23rd my personal view is that popes shouldn't be made saints certainly not for two or three hundred years after they've died because they've got too much political baggage attached to them and in a way benedict the 16th when he beatified um, uh, john paul the second and 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 he waived the uh, the rules which said you have to wait at least five years before someone dies before you can begin the process of canonization. By waiving all that, it seemed to me he was kind of saying in part um, this is a kind of political endorsement of the way that John Paul II was, was Pope. And it seems to me that being a good Pope or even a bad Pope or whatever is not the same thing as being a good man or a bad man. Jerry McArdle was talking to Paul Vallely. Paul's book is called Pope Francis, Untying the Knots, and it's published by Bloomsbury. Writing on the 11th of April this year, the Irish Catholics media reviewer Brendan O'Regan wrote... While bias in RTE news and current affairs can sometimes be subtle, now and then it gets blatant. Last Friday, the Irish Medical Organisation thankfully rejected three motions in favour of abortion legislation in line with the X case and even wider. Though Morning Ireland covered it in a balanced way, that morning's Today with Pat Kenny was skewed. And on the 2nd of May, he commented... Last week, the media coverage of the abortion issue was infuriatingly unbalanced, and there's no sign of the relevant knaves being brought to book. Where would you start? A one-sided Marion Fanucan show, RTE Radio 1, Sunday of last week, saw an isolated Breda O'Brien getting a tough time from Dr Peter Boylan of Hollis Street. The previous Friday on Morning Ireland, Cahill McQuilla had referred to Boylan's input at the Savita inquest as evidence that stood out for people. What people? I wonder why he picked that particular evidence from over a week of it.
And it wasn't just during the debates around the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill that Brendan sensed bias. It was also during debates around same-sex marriage and other moral issues. Well, we're joined now in studio by Brendan O'Regan. You're welcome. And by Patsy McGarry, Religious Affairs Correspondent of the Irish Times, to talk about perceived media bias against religion in general and Catholicism in particular. Brendan, would you like to elaborate a bit and kick us off, please? Yeah. Obviously, from the quotations there, I do believe there is media bias in those areas. Now, I realise it is subjective. It's hard to prove mathematically and so on. Um, and it is complex as well, because RT in particular produces some wonderful religious programmes. So it's in news and current affairs in particular that I think I'd find the bias. And it might be helpful if I kind of, instead of going down to a whole load of examples, and I have a load of examples, but in terms of types of bias, for example, when the programmes like Cardinal Secrets and those programmes on the Clitus Child Abuse were, were on. And I'm not complaining about the exposure at all. I'm just complaining, say, about the imagery that was used. Like they made an awful lot of, the, let's say, the paraphernalia of church to appear very sinister and creepy. So you had these creepy candles and rosary beads swinging and soutans. And so like it, it was creating a kind of, um, I think, an atmosphere in the mind of the viewer that anything to do with church is is creepy and sinister. And I think that was grossly unfair. And then you'd have the typical unbalanced panel where you might have sort of three to one where there'd be three and what might be called the liberal side and maybe one, I don't know, orthodox or conservative Catholic. Uh, sometimes you don't even have the token orthodox Catholic on. Um, I've seen situations where you have this emotion versus reason situation where somebody with a very emotional and a very genuine story, say on, let's say, the liberal side of some social issue. And then, you know, the programmes put somebody on the orthodox side making arguments so you have sort of rational arguments against a very highly emotional story and on radio or television that just doesn't work the person with the arguments just doesn't have a chance um i, I found cases where some presenters weren't weren't asking the tough questions of people on the more liberal side whereas very often people on the more conservative or orthodox side got a very very tough grilling well Instinctively, I'd reject a lot of that, but Patsy, I'll let you do it. Well, I have absolutely no doubt that if Brendan went back further, he'd still find other examples of bias. And I think he himself underlined the principal issue here, which is the very word he used himself, subjective. Uh, and I think Brendan, because he's coming from a particular uh, mindset and a particular view, uh, looks out for and therefore finds the bias that he believes is out there for all media is concerned, including print media. Um, uh, I mean, the examples that co- recorded there earlier on or spoken about earlier on where he talked about the Marion Fanucan programme being unbalanced. Yeah, he talked about Breedy O'Brien and Peter Boylan being the two guests on the programme. Breedy comes from a particular point of view. Peter Boylan comes from another. And on that programme, if I remember correctly, Breedy started explaining magic medical procedure to Peter Boylan, who's uh, one of the most experienced obstetricians and gynaecologists in Ireland. And if his tone was dismissive, which it was, uh, there were grounds for that because of the, the aggression with which she challenged him. And he made the point about Cahill McQuill making the comment about Peter Boylan's evidence being most impactful where the Savita Palapanavar inquest was concerned it's for a very good reason the man knew what he was talking about unlike an awful lot of other people who were uh, spreading opinion around that issue um, from the moment that the story broke right up to the inquest and indeed afterwards until the amendment or the legislation had been dealt with a lot of ill-informed comment which came from an in ideological rather than a faith perspective the sort of position that Pope Francis talked about in his recent interview uh, with the Jesuit publications where he talked about 
the Catholic Church had becoming a small church, preoccupied with small things, that it had become uh, where people were talking more or less from an ideological position rather than a position of position of compassionate and living or lived faith. And I'm sorry, but I think that that's where Brendan's coming from. Yeah, and, well, obviously I wouldn't accept that. On that Protection of Life and Pregnancy Bill, there was three weeks in a row that the the Week in Politics programme was on. And while they had filmed reports that were pretty balanced, in all the panel discussions over three weeks, all the speakers were pro-legislation from one point of view or another. So over a period of three weeks, you had nine speakers to none, um, nine speakers pro-legislation, none on the panels that were against the legislation. Now, to me, that's blatant bias, and I don't think it's a matter of subjectivity. I think that's pretty much beyond reasonable doubt. I think that the broadcasting standards require people to be to be balanced. And I think in terms of the panel, it might have been Breed O'Brien and Peter Boylan. And really, I don't think I've ever heard Breed O'Brien being aggressive. But there were other well, people, have, there were other people in the panel that were, uh, were against her as well. And she got she was isolated. If it had just been the two of them, I would have had absolutely no problem with how they went at each other. But Brendan, you only referred to the two of them in the in your review in the Irish Catholic. Uh, as regards to this week's programme, I can't comment because I didn't see all those programmes. But I mean, at the time, a, a poll done by the Irish Times itself, published in June of this year, found that 89% of the people polled believed that where there's a risk to the life of the mother, abortion should take place. 80% said it should happen where there's a rape and incest. 83% said it should happen where there's a risk to the health of the mother. 52%. Um, uh, agreed that where uh, they should take place at a later stage of pregnancy against 29% who said no. Now listen, I know that opinion polls are not the grounds for which programmes should be constructed or indeed exactly. newspapers, but I can tell you from my own experience and our own newspaper, my own colleagues who are going around with, literally with rulers to measure the column inches going to uh, both sides of the argument. But of course the Irish Times is inevitably a target from people like you and still is when it comes to these issues saying we're pro-liberal or pro-this, that, the other and we're biased against anything you stand for. Well, what I write about is, is the electronic media and I wouldn't like to put all the emphasis on RTE. In fact, I've praised wherever I can in all my columns the wonderful programmes RTE does put out, especially in relation to faith matters like all the religious education or the religious department puts out. But I do think I need to find out bias where I see it. And it's but it's not just in RTE. I mean there was that programme on there in the summer, um, Vincent Brown's programme Challenging God, which I think was grossly biased, particularly because of the bias of the presenter, which I don't think should be clear. I'd love to have a situation where you can't really tell where a presenter stands on an issue, but but too often, um, usually from the liberal side, but not not entirely always, that you can just tell so much. And I thought he was actually quite rude at times to some of his guests. And it was, and he had some very interesting guests on. And it was just such a, a waste of, of a good program. Theater. Well, in fairness to Vincent, he's mm. not just like that when he's dealing with religious matters. I think oh, well, we would all absolutely yes. Yeah, you don't get on the wrong it's side a of style. him anyway. Well, you know, in fairness yeah. to him, it's a style of yeah. presentation, and it works for him. But Patsy, doesn't Brendan have a point? I get it all the time, don't you, that the media is biased? Well, I think that's where Brendan's coming from. Basically, his position is one of hostility to the media. Okay, I mean, no. I won't disagree with him about <laughs> Vincent's style, but at the same time, there are very few broadcasters who have devoted as much time to religion in terms of current affairs. He, If I recall, in RTE, he went through the entire Bible from the Old Testament right through to the New Testament as part of a series of programmes. His own interest in religion and he's made his position very clear, which I think is laudable. And I think and it's better that people and the public at large know where a presenter is coming from uh, um, when it comes to their own convictions or, or lack thereof, as is his case. But he's fascinated by the subject. Yeah, but if, like, if you take example, the programme that was on the other night, the new series of Beyond Belief with Mick Pilo. I mean, there is an example of 
where people could have, and his sort of programmes are the same, where you could have a very civilised discussion. They were talking about the very important issue of conscience. conscience. And you had a, a range of viewpoints represented there. It was a very calm discussion. McPeel was a very calm presenter. And that, I think, serves as well. Patsy said something there. I forget that I was had it in for the media or hostile. I mean, look, looking back to all my comments, I really try very hard to be positive when I can and to praise good programmes where I can. I don't go out picketing radio stations or TV stations. And there's so many good programmes in drama and uh, documentaries but and Brendan, so on and that is what I really love writing about but if there's bias there if I see it that's my job to point it out and I have no hesitation and I have pages and pages of examples of the biased panels the, the, the loaded language the presenters who grill one side tougher than they grill the other it's all there Well Brendan um, in the interest of fairness I should point out I read you every week uh, in the Irish Thanks. Catholic <laughs> and I can tell you from reading you every week there's a quite a pattern to your uh, columns uh, and the essential thrust is hostile to media. All I can do in my column is try to get it as right as I can and as I said before where I see the media bias I pointed out and I mean there have been some very high profile cases and there's no point going back over in detail over it but the Mission to Pray programme was kind of the pinnacle if you like the height of that kind of bias I think um, cases that things that don't get covered I think is, is worth getting into as well for example that notorious Gosnell case in, in America took ages for the media on this side of the the, the pond and in America to, to cover that Explain uh, what that one was now. It was just that there were some very horrific things going on in an abortion clinic and this, uh, Dr Gosnell was, was up on, on trial for it and the, the details were horrific and the mainstream media just ignored it for ages under a lot of pressure then there was like every year there's a massive march for life by the pro-life movement in, in America in, and they march on Washington in huge huge numbers and just out of curiosity this year I thought I'd have a look even at the American media to see was anyone covering it and I just couldn't believe the fact that so many thousands of people could be ignored and yet I kind of can't help feeling that if there had been that many people on the streets campaigning against the church or the Pope or something like that, that it would have got much more coverage. Nonsense. Uh, I well, was at the March if, for Life last January. I covered it for the paper extensively, as did two others of my colleagues in great detail in the paper the next day. Who could argue that people like Caroline Simon or Neve Niven or all these people or, or Mickey Hart lacked profile over the months or the, the prior to the legislation? But I'm I mean, not arguing about the Irish nonsense. Times covering of it. I'm pointing specifically to the electro- no, general, not just us. No, I'm not. I'm pointing particularly at the electronic. Well, it was covered yeah. on, on, on TV that night too on the news. It was so covered that night and um, Saturday night. For example, on one of the marches, the on News Talk or Today FM, they gave a higher profile on their headlines on the Saturday night to a very tiny pro-abortion march than they did to the thousands of people who were out on the pro-life side. That was grossly un, un, grossly biased and a lot of those were forgotten about by the Monday Jews. And if, as I said again, if that many people had been out on nearly any other topic, it was an anti-church topic, there would be it would not have been forgotten so quickly. Well, I mean, uh, no uh, institution is perfect and that includes the media. But I do feel from my own experience in Dublin anyhow that people in the media do their very, very best to get things fair and to do the job properly because they have their own professional credibility to answer to. Uh, and if there are uh, egregious examples and there are occasionally are huge lapses, those, I am glad to say, remain the exception in Ireland and the rule. So I do not accept that in general media are unfair to the Catholic Church or coverage of its affairs. Patsy McGarry and Brendan O'Regan, thank you both for Thanks, joining Ellie. us on The God's Lot. Finally, during our summer break, Ireland lost one of the greatest religious thinkers of our time, Professor Sean Frame. Sean was a humble, holy and hopeful man, as can be heard here in this clip from our Good Friday programme, where shortly after the election of Pope Francis, we speculated about what Jesus might do and think were he to walk the earth in human form today. 
in this awfully secular world we've had, in this awfully secular place of RTE, quote unquote, uh, we, we end up <laughs> we by, send, <laughs> by sending people to Rome and the, the excitement of uh, the election of a pope over the last few weeks. I've seen nothing like it in the Western world. So, you know, I've, and I know it may be just uh, interest in, 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 in the, the ceremonials and all the rest of it, but there are a lot of people at the, at the cold face working with the poor, working, and our, our, our newly elected pope is somebody that I think will, will give great strength to, to those such people uh, and great inspiration to them. So, of course, Jesus' vision is still alive and well. And I think he would have said, great. I know it has got corrupted. It has got been taken over by a church that has taken on the whole imperial structure that he fought against at, at the time of Constantine, three centuries later. And uh, it continues much of that still. Hopefully, we get rid of some of that now with the Curia. But, but really and truly, I think, of course, he, he would say it there are wonderful things done in my name and uh, there is great concern uh, among a lot of people in, uh, throughout the world. It has been for good. It has, I know that a lot of bad things have been done in his name also. Of course that's the case. But he, certainly his vision is still alive, it seems to me. The late Sean Frayne, er yeshje gareva onum usel. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. Our phone number is 01208 and our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. In a future programme, we'll be talking about some Dublin Theatre Festival productions. One of the plays seen by our team was Desire Under the Elms at Smock Alley Theatre, which received rave reviews and runs until this Sunday, October the 13th. Also this Sunday on RTE1 television at half past ten, Gay Byrne interviews the new European ombudsman Emily O'Reilly. Then on Monday night at a quarter past eleven, Mick Pilo in Beyond Belief asks, is the broadcast Angelus a sacred cow to be treasured or an out-of-date relic? Well, we'll be back next Friday at the same time with the Godslot debates recorded at Ratmines College. Good Shin, Slán, Ispanacht. I gotta have faith. Mm-hmm.